Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Nukeproof and Kushcore, and I'm going to tell you how you can get your hands on some awesome prizes from both these brands in just a second. I've just got back from a week on the road in Scotland, living out of a very kindly loaned campervan and riding and chatting with some of Scotland's top riders. As anyone who knows Scotland will be aware, the weather can be a little bit variable. It's safe to say that this week I've seen it all, from sunshine to days of solid rain. Luckily, Rob from Nukeproof helped me out with some of their awesome new apparel range and it's been spot on. The standout items for me are the Outland Tech Tee and the Black Lion Long Sleeve Jerseys. The Tech Tee is really casual and made of the nicest fabric, which is super soft and it feels lovely to wear. The Black Lion Jersey is super light, it's got a great fit and it's got an even lighter back panel to help regulate your body temperature. If you want to wear the same gear as Sam Hill, then there's Blackline Race Range, which is designed to be the ultimate gear for athletes performing at the highest level. For the new range, Nukeproof have been really focused on the environmental side of things. They're now using Blue Sign approved fabrics and Ecotech certification wherever possible. And they're also committing to reduce wastage from previous season's fabrics by creating their dead stock line, which will use the offcuts and wastage to create limited runs of products in high-end premium fabrics. If you want to check it out for yourself, then you can do that over at nukeproof.com. Every trail I rode on this trip was new to me and I was hanging onto the coattails of some very fast local riders. Luckily, I was using Kushcore, so I didn't have to worry about hitting the odd rock a little harder than I expected. But Kushcore aren't just about rim protection. The extra damping they provide actually makes things feel smoother and helps the bike carry more speed. They also give you more support in the turns and that added confidence to push on through the rocks. Kushcore really does help you go bigger, corner harder and ride faster with total confidence. They come in Pro, XC, Plus and Gravel size and you can also get the Pro size as a 29275 mix for your mullet. If the green valves aren't for you, then Kushcore now have a choice of different valve colours too. If you're based in the UK, you can purchase them directly from Silverfish over at silverfish-uk.com. If you're elsewhere in the world, then head to kushcore.com. Nukeproof and Kushcore have put together an awesome prize bundle, and for your chance to win it, all you need to do is to help me by filling out my 2021 listener survey. Help me find out a bit more about you and help me improve what I'm doing. It'll take a couple of minutes to complete and you can find it by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash survey now. The survey closes at the end of May, so you've only got a couple of days to get it done. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe, where I've got links to all the major platforms to help you. All right, the first stop on my Scotland road trip was Aberfoyle, home to many talented riders, including photographer, writer and adventurer Pete Scullion. Pete has spent the last 20 years involved with bikes in some shape or form, but he's been on a winding path to find his perfect role in the sport. We chat about his journey from racing through marketing and into the media side of things to the freelance portfolio that he has today. Pete's story shows that determination and hard work really do pay off and that there is more than one way to get paid to ride a bike. So without further ado, here's Pete Scullion. Pete Scullion, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Sun is shining. We've ridden bikes. All good. It is very good. Yeah, my first trip to Aberfoyle and... Uh, think you've done a very good uh, tour guide job of dragging me around the local hills it's a pretty special place it's pretty spectacular moved here for a reason Um, those trails out the back door yeah and it is 
it, it, and I was saying to you on the trail, it's unique in it, and it's kind of the yeah. way it's made up. Like the style of the trails is very different to anything else. Uh, yeah, I think the the style of the dirt and the and the rock sort of lends itself well to a tra- certain type of trail developing. Um, very interesting in the wet, and I even more interesting in the snow. Yeah, yeah, it was challenging enough in the dry today, so. I definitely have some learning to do if I'm going to come yeah. back here and ride it in the wet. I think you got deck. it about as good as it can get. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's an awesome ride. Thank you for that. We've no had worries. some incredible weather, great views. So that was a, a good start for this trip to Scotland. Let's wind the clock back and um, tell us a little bit about how you got into bikes in the first place. I, my older brother, Rob, who uh, currently works for Continental, um, got into downhill pretty early, like right around just before 2000, I think. And then my little brother also took up riding and I was the odd one out. I didn't actually ride anything other than just going for a ride with my parents on a fire road. And then I went to watch Rob race. I think it was Coney Green 99, a RAV4 race, push-up race near Lempster. And saw Rob riding and then saw one Steve Pete, who was the the absolute boy. He was on his red and white GTI drive. Nice. And I just thought that's that looks like the <laughs> coolest thing I've ever, I've ever seen, and I want to do that. So I think it was that Christmas 2000. I think I bullied my parents into buying me a proper mountain bike. Yeah. What was your first proper mountain bike? It was a Saracen Exile hardtail. I did want a raw two, uh-huh. but then I went to try and pick it up and I couldn't pick it up. <laughs> so I went for the hardtail instead. <laughs> nice. And that took a bit of a battering, right? That was, I think within weeks of getting that, I entered a Pierce Winter Series at Hopton. And that was back when you had to fill in the paper form and send it off with a cheque. So you didn't have to ask the parents very nicely to write you a cheque out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that. Excellent. How did you get on? Terrible. <laughs> utterly, utterly abysmal. Have you ridden Hopton? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty rooty, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty rooty, yeah. Rooty on a hardtail on Tierga Factory Downhill Pros <laughs> and just like having no idea, like proper rabbit in the headlights. Yeah. I think I fell off minimum five times then free run. And as soon as I got home, I entered the rest of the series. I'm just like the terrible experience didn't actually compute. <laughs> You'd had a good time then. I, I don't know. I don't think I did. Hitting the ground, like... Because that was practice runs as well, I'd fall off five times. So you're sort of getting on to sort of 30 crashes in a day. Um, I'm just like, well, clearly want to do that again. Yeah, obviously, why not? <laughs> why do we do this sport? Yeah, fair play. So, yeah, you kind of... You were in that, I guess, the heyday of kind of Midland Super Series racing and the back end of some of the Welsh Dragon stuff, yeah? Is that that era? Yeah, I came to Dragons quite late. Mm-hmm. I, I think I maybe sort of realised that the Dragons were meaty. Yeah, gnarly tracks. Seriously, I, I didn't ride a dra- I never. I don't think I actually ever raced a Dragon. I did a Dragon uplift day at Manus D uh-huh. and won a Mountain Ash and thought there's no way I could race. Like Manus D especially was... Right now, it's probably exactly the kind of thing I'd want to ride. Yeah. But back then, it was just like, there's no way I'd get down and, that. And on those bikes as well. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty... Well, they were good then. 
But I think my the bike I rode today probably had more travel and better geometry than and probably lighter as well. Yeah. Than the bike I was riding there. Better brakes, better suspension. Yeah, a lot <laughs> yeah. has changed. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So were you were you competitive in both sense, I guess? Were you doing well and were you wanting to continue to beat people and was there a drive there for that? Not in the classical like super competitive i was never i would always just try and go faster in my second run and i if i could stay upright the like even better um but no not one of these fiercely competitive people which just seems weird because i probably spent a decade spending an awful lot of money entering and traveling to downhill races that it didn't matter what i did like certainly towards the end of it i would train a lot uh-huh. and was pretty daft fit but it was clearly all in my head <laughs> so it, it just the beeps as soon as i was between the tape and a race run i just forget everything i practiced you, just, yeah you were saying earlier blowing off all your lines that just you've been ride past all the lines i practiced yeah. on and then just get frustrated and stiffen up and probably fall off and then yeah just a downward spiral towards yeah. the finish line was it like a was it a project for you, you were focused on you getting better rather than on you beating other people. Like. Yeah, I mean, I pretty soon I realised that it didn't matter what I did, I'd probably come mid-pack. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that as soon as I'd sort of realised that coming mid-pack, it was, it was more about the group of people I'd race with. And okay. I'd, at that point, like, trail bikes weren't really coming, to, like, enduro wasn't really a thing, sort of 2005. Mm-hmm. You're sort of eight years ahead of... EWS like it's still just some things that French and Italians do yeah. but look at look at the, those guys riding down a, a mountain on a trail bike like a prop and an alp on a trail bike yeah that just it just didn't happen here um so it wasn't, it wasn't really I wanted to ride bikes but the only thing I had was a downhill bike and I didn't want to ride cross country so Fair that's enough. just sort of that's just what you did yeah yeah, you had to go to races to get the ride time back then. There wasn't really much going on with uplift. There's, like you say, a little bit of drag and stuff, but yeah. there was no Revolution Bike Park or anywhere like that where you could yeah, go and totally. just smash out laps without it being a race. So, yeah. yeah, you had to be part of it, I guess. Did you, at that time, did you ever think you'd like or that you could have a career in the mountain bike world? No. I remember... I, I remember quite early on we started racing really enjoying just riding bikes like we'd just ride even if we weren't racing you'd ride bikes monday to friday after school and thinking it would be really cool to get paid to ride a bike and then that sort thought sort of quite quickly evaporated when i realized i'm never going to get paid to ride a bike down a hill fast and uh i think it was probably only in the last maybe four or five years i do actually get paid essentially to ride my bike and I was like, holy smokes. <laughs> I, it's the thing. The thing that I thought about like 20 years ago is essentially now what's happened. It's just in a different guise, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That must feel pretty good. Yeah, you won't hear me complaining. <laughs> nice one. So what, yeah, with uh, sort of putting mountain biking aside for a bit, what path did you follow from the educational side of things? Um, I did, I always liked history and languages seem to make sense but i went to uni to do spanish and history okay because it was what i was good at yeah and i like everybody else was going to uni and the concept i didn't really think i ever thought well i could just go and get a job 
just go to uni because everybody else was doing it. Yeah, same for me. And yeah, uh, yeah just three years at, in Edinburgh, Spanish and history, no bother. Nice. That and that was that. What brought you to Scotland then? Yep. Yeah. Um, we did. What did I do? I had four choices for my uni course. I could go at home in Aberystwyth, go to Swansea. Uh, where else did I go? Leeds or Edinburgh? Yeah. And I told my mum that I didn't want to go to a cycling to a uni that had a crap cycling club. <laughs> and so basically, it was have I met the entry requirements? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The next important thing is is the cycling club any good and the edinburgh cycling club had just done like a like a club trip to the fort william world cup and i was like well yeah there you go that's it it's an obvious sign, move. sign me up well, was it a good scene then edinburgh for the mountain biking yeah like the cycling club was pretty big and there quite a lot of like we i think we won the student champs downhill one year and oh. it was just like holy smokes I think that was at Cum Khan when all the tents started trying to fly away. Um, yeah, and the, there was a real, like, Chris Hutchins was on our team that year, which kind of really sort of, there was a couple of other guys that were racing, like, bottom end, elite, top end, expert, that really helped. Yeah. And I was just there making up the numbers. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was good. There was people riding every weekend and on every conceivable type of bike, so... Very nice. It's always somebody to ride with. And from that degree then, did you have a view of what you wanted to do with it at the end? Because I think that's often the challenge with a lot of degrees, right? Where do you go after that? Yeah. I remember having a uh, discussion with my granddad who'd done dentistry. So clearly he was going to become a dentist. And I had no, like, that didn't just register with him. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, you don't have to know what you want to do and I think that was quite formative because I was just I didn't know what to do but it slightly stressed me out I'll just get to the end of the four years of like what am I going to do like I don't know <laughs> I didn't think yeah to plan that far ahead yeah. but I was quite unlucky and lucky in many ways that I only did three of the four I was supposed to do at uni four years okay um, and yeah so I basically was looking for a job a year before all the other people I'd gone to uni with. And I think it was, what was that, 2008? Mm -hmm. And I was looking for a job and there was, there were, there was lots of options. And uh, hotlines were um, advertising. So I, I got offered the job the day I graduated at hotlines, which I thought was quite fortuitous. Yeah. And then the year later, I think we went back into the, another recession uh, okay. all my pals that had done like law and all these jobs that would essentially guarantee you a job couldn't yeah. get work or really had to try a lot harder than they thought they were going to so at the time when i was only going to do the th three or four years i was a bit annoyed with myself yeah and then realized that i actually had a job and rather than trying to make a student loan last three months you were getting paid that much money every month so i don't know what <laughs> don't know what to do with all this money I've got. Awesome. So for people that don't know, Hotlines is a distributor in the UK, yep, right? They based in South Queensbury, so yeah. pretty handy. Distribute quite a lot of the, the big name brands, I guess. They do indeed. Some well-known names, yeah. So what were you doing for them? I started just at sale, as sales and tech. So it was answering the phones, trying to sell stuff to shops. Okay. You'd be sort of paired up with a, one of the sales reps. And then that grew into 
marketing assistant. Um, so yeah, everything that comes with helping a marketing manager in the cycling industry. Yeah. And then uh, did that for the 2008 till 2012. Yeah. Were you working with Will Longdon? Yeah. The just before. So that I think it was maybe 18 months. I forget the timeline exactly, but. Um, there was Will Longdon, Martin Astley. Oh, yeah, okay. Two fairly good dudes to be working under. Yeah. Um, a lot of stuff got done. Nice. What was it like working for Will? Because I guess coming from the race, the downhill race team, he's a bit of a, a hero maybe, I don't know. Um, yeah, me and Will got on really well. Um, and I, I think both him and Martin together had their specialties. Like Will did pretty much all the sponsorship and knew who, who should be sponsors, who shouldn't. Um, and managed the demo fleet and all that, and it was just a lot of experience. Yeah. And if you needed, if you didn't know something, you call one of those two, and they'd have the answer. Awesome. So yeah, it was pretty cool. We did a lot of very long days and very long drives to <laughs> Eurobike and everything. So yeah, we spent a lot of time in each other's company and terrible commercial vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And at what point does your love for photography kind of come into play? That was a very roundabout, uh, that happened completely by accident. Um, and it was sort of a realisation. I did, when my uh, tenure at Orange came to an end, I was a bit rudderless. I basically moved in with my older brother at, for about 11 months and I was just, had no idea what I was going to do. Not a clue. And then uh, Sam Needham was... Um, had been contacted by MBR about doing uh, they were doing a franchise called Britain's Best Single Track Okay. and Sam at the time couldn't wrap his head around writing features but could obviously take excellent photos and yeah. he needed two other riders to be in each feature so it looked like some pals were going for a ride uh -huh. and he was like do you want to do the words and ride in the thing and we'll find somebody else and uh, I was like yeah that sounds good and it took a full sort of year of doing that before realising that if I wrote the words and took the photos, I could double my money. So it was a very sort of practical, pragmatic, I could do, spend the same amount of time doing the same thing and get paid twice as much for it. Yeah. Which sounds really cold and sort of, I like taking photos because it pays money. But the, the longer I got, the longer, longer I did it, the sort of more I kind of got my eye in and then you like you start working out the limitations of what the kit can do yeah. and then you I started getting photos in my head so I'd be like get like a location for example and be like I know that I can get if you get the rider and the light and all that kind of stuff arranged properly then this photo will be unbelievable and then the more and more I got into that I would start like examining forecasts and getting really good at predicting inversions. Okay. And it, if you've been above up a mountain above an inversion for sunrise or sunset, you know it is pretty unique. Yeah. And you're probably one of the only people that hasn't thought, it's cloudy today. You've thought, I can get above this. So the amount of times I've been like, yeah, just studying forecasts and weather patterns, and you start getting really invested in it. You invest an awful lot of time in, like last night where you were parked. Yeah, yeah. The plan, I was up until about quarter to one because there'd been a forecast for the Northern Lights okay. kicking off. 
Yeah. And I was like, I need to go and shoot. Seeing the Northern Lights in the UK is or anywhere is amazing. But it's just like this, sometimes you've just got to be able to commit everything to getting one photo. Uh-huh. And it's just, it's quite addictive. <laughs> Especially if you've got the results before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting that you're, you have something often in your head kind of before you go to shoot rather than interpreting the scene and then deciding what to shoot is that yeah well that's certainly a lot of stuff if you're gonna go and shoot something for a magazine you're very much or certainly if you're going to shoot with a rider or a personality then you've just got to shoot whatever's in front of you you've just got to try and make it look good and that in itself is a skill but i've because i ride a lot of my own um and i treated myself to a proper nice tripod last winter um, I've got really good at self-timering shots of myself. Okay. Um, which, again, means that you kind of take having to get somebody else along. Yeah. Um, but it does mean a lot of press the self-timer and pedal like the devil snapping at your heels. <laughs> um, but actually self-shot a uh, feature of single track in November last year that it ended up in a, a cover shot. Yeah above a double inversion at sunrise wow and that was i think that was one of three dry days in november here yeah so it was like study the forecast take the and it paid off but i think by midday i'd been awake for like nine ten hours already so i got back to the car and couldn't even process all the amazing photos i'd taken (laughs) i was just like i don't even know what to do with myself yeah but it, pay, it paid off big yeah. time. Yeah, it's a lot of effort, but I guess if you've got that idea in your head and you know it's mm. possible, yeah, then you'll dig and dig until you can make it happen, right? Yeah, but sometimes the flip side of that is I've gone to go above an inversion up a very big mountain in Scotland. And in fact, we did one uh, above Arnisdale, so if you're driving towards Skye just before you get to the coast out of Glenshiel, yeah, hang a left... And there's a mountain called Ben Scrithiel that is, when you're at the top of it, you can't see the road that's hemmed between the mountain and the sea. It's that steep. And we'd gone up it for sunrise and the cloud just sunk, mm-hmm. but just completely covered the mountain. Yeah. And we didn't see the sun until the following day because it's just the cloud just dropped. But it was like up to whatever, like 15,000 feet. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, one of my pals' face started going blue, and it was really cold and quite unpleasant. And we climbed it in the dark, and it was so—it was essentially a scramble with a bike on your back. I'm like, well, we can't go down that, so we've got, we had to do a circuitous route, and we're just like, let's never do that one of them again. <laughs> so it's yeah, swings and roundabouts. Sometimes yeah. you get the gold, sometimes it's not so great. Fair enough. Let's steer back a bit to your career in the industry. So after Hotlines, you went to Orange, is yep. that right? Mar- marketing manager at Orange, yeah. yeah. That, did that feel like a bit of a dream job at that point in time? You kind of work your way up the marketing ladder. You're with a, a big UK brand, especially at that point in time as well. Yeah, it was um, It was never something I'd planned uh-huh. on doing. I was I was approached by them. Right, okay. Um, which was a nice feeling. Yeah, I bet. Um and yeah, I do like, I'm very bad at having like long-term plans. Like if I couldn't tell you what I was going to do next year, just hopefully more of the same, but yeah. never one of those people, um, to just be like, oh, I'll just move country. 
Which it does it doesn't seem like that, but it was a pretty big deal for me at the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, coming down to Halifax from were you you up Edinburgh Ways yeah. for hotlines at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah, so quite a quite a big move. Yeah. And yeah, a step up the ladder, go yeah. from assistant to manager. Yeah. How was it? Interesting. Um I don't think I I don't think um I really fit Okay. The what they were looking for. Right. Um and I don't think one of the first things I thought when I left is I shouldn't have left Scotland. Okay. And as soon as I got there, I was just like, I shouldn't have left Scotland. And that sort of gnawed at me. Um, I would essentially spend every weekend either driving to the lakes or driving to Scotland to try and get away from it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't ideal. Yeah. For various reasons. That's fair enough. How long were you there for in the end? 11 months. Okay. And then, like you said, this is when you had the kind of down period of not quite knowing Basically, what it was you wanted to do. Barely didn't work for the best part of a year. Okay. But in, in during that time, I think, I remember getting to a point and thinking, I've applied for an awful lot of jobs. Because like, I was definitely, I wanted to work. Yeah. That wasn't the problem. It was, uh, I think I went for 103 interviews in that 11 months. Whoa. Which is like, any, I just didn't want anything. Yeah. Preferably in bikes, but... You know, I, I, you know, it can't be, I'm not going for any job that requires me to know particle physics or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. I just want to work. Yeah. And out of the 103 jobs I applied for, I got four interviews. That was pretty depressing. That's yeah. That's and harsh. you're just like, well, why? You get to the point where it's just like, why should I bother? Yeah. And like most of those, you wouldn't even get a thanks for applying. You just get silence. Um, so yeah, that was pretty interesting. And then I was just like, it was the one thing I then told myself is just I need to get back to Scotland. Yeah. Cause it was like, if, I, if I can't work, I may as well not work where I want to be. Mm-hmm. Obviously I wanted, that wasn't the idea. Just go and be a vagabond in Scotland. <laughs> but we just like it. It was like, this is the first time I told myself that you make a plan, stick to it. And I think it was... 2014 so it was like I'd been at Rob's for just over 11 months okay and then I applied for a job at Go Ape Up The Hill here yeah and they were like you got the job you start in two weeks and I was just like oh okay didn't have anywhere to live in fact it was very similar to when I started at Orange and when I'd had the chat with Michael and uh, I think Dave Flynn had left and they didn't have a marketing manager. Right. And they were like, well, when can you start? And I handed my notice in at Hotlines, assuming they want me to work the month, and we're just like, no, do, go do what you want to do. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then foolishly said to Orange I'd start in a fortnight, but I'd, I'd still... So basically did Edinburgh to Halifax, maybe like... Just doing viewings, yeah, two hundred and fifty mile legs each side, because right. you couldn't. I couldn't get them all to line up in the same day, and then we just had to pick one. Yeah. And the same same deal here. Just had to drive from Manchester back up the road and just actually wrote a car off, going to view a car uh, flat and calendar, which kind of threw a spanner in the works. Yeah, not ideal. Definitely not <laughs> ideal. You walked um, away from that one though. I cut my hand. Wow! But wrecked the car. Um, it was one of them, previous shape to uh, Skoda Fabia. Yeah. 
buy uh, cars with a high end cap rating, they do genuinely save your life. There you go. Um, and yeah, then just got the job here and then just started the a very sort of slow process of working out which magazines would actually want me to work for them. Right. And probably spent a few years pitching the wrong stuff to the wrong magazines. And then instead of being like, I'll try that with that person, just getting completely downtrodden, yeah. disheartened, and just not pitching it to anybody else. Okay. So, yeah, so it's about finding the right pitch for the right person, yeah. yeah? And then if it doesn't work, just being like, right, believe in the concept. Yeah. And pitch to somebody else. Or maybe think, look at it and realise it might be a bit crap. <laughs> well, that's the tricky thing, isn't it? Because like you say... Just because someone's turned it down doesn't necessarily mean it's crap, but it might be crap. It might be, yeah. Um, yeah, you need to be as critical as of yourself as you are of anybody else. Yeah. So that took a while. And is that how it works in the freelance kind of mountain bike world, at least in the UK anyway? You, you pitch concepts to magazines or websites or whatever? Generally, yeah. yeah. And I think it also... A lot of it comes down to the relationship you have with that magazine out with the... Because a lot of the time you might never meet the person that works at that magazine. The person you speak to right. might work in an office in Croydon. They say it's at MBR in their old, in their old office, yeah. for example. Um, and yeah, you've just got to be... Try and have an actual conversation with somebody rather than just getting a commission email and then submitting the stuff actually talk to people yeah so was the job well first off for the people that don't know i'm not sure if this is a global phenomenon but can you explain go ape quickly go ape is a high work like high work course yeah um, up in the trees clipped in big zip lines yeah swinging into a car yeah. all that kind of jazz and what, what were you doing for them I was an instructor. Okay. Essentially, fit somebody in a harness, Yeah. tell them how not to fall out of a tree, <laughs> and then make sure they don't fall out of a tree. Sounds and then good. if they can't get themselves out of the trees, you get them out of the trees for yeah. them. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, fair enough. And was that full-time, or were you able to I, kind of pick and choose your I hours? I was trying not to be full-time. I probably should have gone full-time at the start and then right. whittled it down, whereas I decided I was going to be successful, mm -hmm. and there wasn't. And then had no money from either job. And then it got to a point, sort of maybe 2016, where the freelance work started to pick up. Because I started being a bit more critical of my own work and, you know, starting to build relationships with folk. That was also when I started being able to produce consistently better photography. Okay. Which makes a big difference. Like words were never a problem. A history degree kind of sets you up pretty well for rattling out. 3,000 coherent words. Yeah. But the photography was, I was new to. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. So given what you know now, if you were trying, if you were setting off from scratch trying to build a freelance journalism career in the mountain bike industry, would you do anything different or do you think it just takes time? I think if I was going to do it now, it would be harder than ever. Because back when I started, it was like, you either bought a Nikon or a Canon. Yeah. And now you've got untold options and there's an awful lot more people taking an awful lot more photos. Yeah. Phones now take an annoyingly good photo, <laughs> which sort of 
um, really sort of affects how people sort of consume, like, the level you think, going back, like, guys would... You think, like, Jeff War, for example, used to shoot, like, magazines, newspapers, football, yeah, and then you've got to go to the dark room or hand in your roll of film, and, like, it's a totally different world. And now, and pretty much, if, even if you've got your camera on auto, you can still take a pretty good photo. So that I think the... I would definitely do things differently. I'm not sure how, because <laughs> it's a very different... Just the fact that digital's so prolific. Yeah, yeah. And a good camera on auto will take get you most of the way. But the difference is, is being able to produce it consistently. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, if I was going to do anything more different to what I did, I'd have a bit more faith in the ideas I had in my head. Okay. And that's probably where a lot of the... Somebody just saying, no, that doesn't suit us. Just like actually be like, well, I wouldn't say, well, why doesn't it suit you? Okay. How, if I, if we could change a few aspects or whatever, would, would you be keen? Yeah. I just be like, all right, cheers. And that sort of, a, I'm not sure you can just decide to have self-confidence. No, you build that, right? But that's what's come from that sort of was it seven years of just gradually working your way up. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were saying earlier that you've it's fairly recent that you've been able to knock the go eight sort of side job on the head and go all in with the, the freelance stuff. Yeah, that was probably the silver one of the few silver linings to come out of a global pandemic <laughs> is that I like we went into lockdown number one, was it March twenty twenty? Yeah. And that was just like, oh, I guess I'll not do any work for 12 weeks, minimum. Yeah. And I realised I didn't actually miss being up there, which was kind of, took a while to actually realise. And then as soon as things opened up in July, was it? Yeah, around that one. Late June, late July, June yeah. early July. Just like had a lot of people wanting me to do work for them. Like, nice. And then it got to the point where I was not going to be able to commit enough time up the hill yeah. to and do the other stuff. And I didn't want to be working seven days a week because I just don't think that's a particularly good way to live. Yeah, not for a long period of time no. anyway. Um, and it was going to... I'd always prided myself on going to work to do the work, not going to work to get that out of the way so you get paid. Yeah. So it was just a case of being like, I don't think I can actually commit any sort of time that's going to be useful to me or you. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, and then just had to forget about not working for 12 weeks and just hit the ground running hard and just try and make as much money as quickly as possible before my, I just assumed we were going to go into a lockdown again. Yeah. And I was right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not glad I was right, but, yeah, it was just like, just forget about all that. You've just got to get get back at it. Yeah. And has that kind of level of work been consistent? Is there still a good amount of work coming in? Can you see a good long-term sort of future for the freelance thing? And a long-term and freelance don't always go hand in hand, do they? But No, I think I've got better at um, not just doing one thing. Okay. Because yeah. I, I had a thought when I did, it was essentially back in 2013, the only work I did was for MBR. 
And I had to, I remember just thinking, if this stops, I've got no work. And it, I think they changed publishing house a couple of times and I was right. It did just sort of fizzle out. And I'd been sensible enough to sort of not have one income stream dominating my overall income. So it had gotten better. And again, I think that's the self-confidence thing is just actually going and talking to people yeah. rather than waiting for the work coming to you. For sure. Um, so, yeah, we're doing all right, but it's not all taking photos of bikes in the mountains anymore. <laughs> right, okay, you've diversified a bit. Just, I think you've just... If in, Before, if there was some boring work I didn't want to do, I just wouldn't do it. Uh -huh. And I think you've just got to get over yourself sometimes and just do the work. Yeah. Because just got to be glad for it. There's yeah. an awful lot of people that still haven't worked in like 18 months. Yeah, definitely. And you can't go passing up work and then moaning about not having any money. Yeah, fair comment. Yeah, because yeah. I, live, I live on my own, so like pretty much all of the money that comes into my bank account is generated by me. Yeah. So it would be a bit of an idiot complaining <laughs> about having no money because it's essentially it's all down to me. Yeah, fair enough. So what parts of your work now do you find the most fulfilling? Getting the shot that's in my head. Because sometimes you've got to go and get the shot you've got in your head just to go and get it. It doesn't matter if nobody pays you for it. Yeah. Um, but getting a, fi a feature idea from start to finish that's... Um, really like one of those like a, I'm not going to say a passion project but one of the things you really can't wait to go and do yeah um, and there are certain parts of the world that lend themselves pretty well to that any trip in the, to the Basque country is always going to win um, <laughs> like I, I think I mentioned on the ride before that usually if me and Doug are going to go and do a press trip I don't often need to actually know what he's set up because uh -huh. I know that the stuff he's set up is going to be just yeah. so because he's a photographer in his own a really handy uh, photographer okay. in his own right so you know fine well that he's sort of seen it through a rider and a photographer's eyes yeah um, so this is Doug from Basque MTB Basque MTB yeah, yeah. just do yourself a favour and go on a trip with <laughs> Doug it's um, it is the boy yeah um, and yeah Generally, anything, I get pretty lucky because it's of the fact that I'm essentially nine times out of ten pitching an idea to a magazine, and you generally need two riders minimum to be in the shoot. Yeah, it's usually a ride with friends. Nice, and you get to go, and it's work, but it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> like probably key for certainly this year. One I did, like winter here was terrible work-wise. Right. A lot of just everything under snow and ice. I didn't do a shoot for three months. Wow. That was quite worrying. Yeah. Um, and then I did a shoot that's not yet been published, so I won't say where, but we essentially went up a mountain with two really good pals, got above an inversion on a Monroe I'd not done before. And... It was like somebody had just let go of my scalp. <laughs> like the, just got home so relaxed and just, I was 
utterly wiped out. Yeah. I'd not taken my bike and a full camera pack up a mountain for a long time. It would probably have been November was the last time I did something similar. Wow. So it was probably a good sort of four or five months yeah. of not doing that thing. And I was just sat in the car at the end, just happy and broken, <laughs> which I think is probably the best way to be because you just get into bed and don't really sort of remember falling asleep. Yeah, that's a, that's a sign of a good day yeah. for sure. Yeah. So outside of a pandemic, I mean, you travel quite a lot for your job, I guess. Is that an important part of it for you, like being able to explore new areas and see different parts of the world? Yep. Um, getting, like, I've, I don't know why, but, um, well, it's proximity, I guess, but I tend to go back to not the same places specifically, but, like, like I've been... We did a trip with Doug in 2014, and then 2016 and 2018, and we were teeing up another um, round for last year. Uh-huh. And it obviously, some things got in the way of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, love exploring, uh, love learning, like just love, yeah, learning for me is a big part of it, which often just means going somewhere brand new and just. You've got to be able to just get the camera out of the bag and make the photos work. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere you've never been before. Could, could feel that on the ride today. You're one of the most knowledgeable people I've ridden with in their local area. I think the amount you could tell me about the history of the area and the trails and the wildlife. Yes, yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I just quite, don't know why you wouldn't. Why you wouldn't know about where you live. I mean, I, again, where we are is quite unique. Mm. Um, but. Just seemed bizarre that you wouldn't try and find that stuff out. Yeah, yeah, but it's—I don't hear that very often when I ride with people in their in their kind of spots. But it's really nice; it adds another layer to the day to the ride. Yeah. Well, I guess if if a, a lot of times trails in the UK are just cut down through a plantation forest. There's no history there because it's been a plantation forest. It got chopped down after during World War One. They replanted it, chopped it down during World War Two, chopped it down in the seventies, and now they're chopping it down now. Yeah, there's, no, there's not really an awful lot going on other than pine growing back real fast to get chopped down again. Yeah, true. Um, Whereas so, here's a bit yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and you. I mean, you definitely have a penchant for adventure, like a lot of your photography. I guess again, a, a bit of a byproduct of where you live, but a lot of kind of high mountain stuff and big views and all that kind of stuff. How do you go about preparing to ride somewhere like that when you've not been before? Like, What goes into that to make sure that you're going to get what you want from it, you're going to have a good ride, but you're also going to be safe and all of that side of things? Generally, we'll never do a dawn raid on a road I don't know. Okay, why is that? Um in the dark in it um <laughs> even like i've got some pretty good lights but generally that's like the, the number one rule okay don't do routes you don't know in the dark yeah because an awful lot more can go wrong all you've got to do is go over the bars in the dark on a trail you know and if the light's not pointing where you're going it gets pretty certainly in higher places as well yeah is and again if you've done a night ride pretty easy trails feel fairly hectic in the dark very true so it's that's number one um generally we'll have looked at a map long enough to know the route off behind in my head 
So if your map goes flying off in the wind, doesn't matter. An actual map. An actual pa- paper maps are completely underrated. But if you don't know how to find where you are on the map, a map is just a piece of paper. Yeah. Like um, if you're lost, having a map's kind of useless unless you can sort of orientate yourself, know yeah. which way you're facing. Um, so would you ever ride somewhere you don't know without a physical map? Would you ever rely on a... a, a it depends on the route. It okay. depends on the level of exposure and the distance. Distant, obviously, distance with no exposure is quite easy. You've just got to know, yeah, if the path splits, that you need to stay right, that kind of thing. But generally, we'll have looked at the map for so long on online map, usually bike hike, because it's amazing. Yeah. And have markers. Okay. In my head, if it's river crossings or cairns or the mountain that's opposite the glen where we you'd be, it's like take reference points essentially. I would usually always take a, an emergency shelter. Okay. If I'm taking my big camera bag, there's enough room in it for an emergency shelter. Is this one of those like almost like a parachute thing you sort of throw up and yeah. then hook under your bum and sit yeah. in? Like, one of them. Yeah. It's got a window in it. I don't know why you'd need to see out when you're in an emergency, but <laughs> yeah, the big orange bag tends yeah. to. How big are they? Like to carry when they're packed up? Probably, probably like a small sleeping bag. Okay. Like if you get like a proper nice yeah. pack down sleeping bag. So they bag. fit in most like decent sized riding packs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and generally, well, usually, almost always, if I have to think about whether to keep going, I don't keep going. Right. Like I, it sucks to have to sack a day off, especially if it's for work. But there are points where you just need to know that it's not going to be worth it. So if you're starting to doubt going Yeah, as soon as you doubt. Because um, like, especially if it's a brand new route, if you keep them going, everything's new. If you turn them back, at least it's ground you've already walked over. Yeah, true. And it's sort of... Um, I always say, you say, I see a lot of walkers in Scotland. The nice thing about riding stupid places in Scotland is people are generally just really keen to know where you're going and they're just like, I can't believe you're bringing a bike up here. <laughs> and they're like... A, Usually they're like, are you riding down that? And I always just tell them I like my teeth attached to my head as much as the next guy. Um, There's no point in rolling the dice on your own in big mountains, especially during a pandemic, because the amount of time it's going to take for a mountain rescue to get to you and all that jazz. I just don't want to be in that situation. No, that's fair. So other than the, the shelter, what else are you taking with you, like tools, food, that sort oh, of stuff? Oh, it'd be like the full, um, like how we'll have plugs, a pump, a spare tube, um, full set of Allen keys for the bike, so generally six down to a two mil, yeah. a chain breaker. Yeah. Uh, and... Regards fueling me, I anybody that's gone on a ride with me will know, is I will eat all my food that I've brought with me after the ride okay. and then complain of having a headache because I haven't drunk any water all day. <laughs> like, the wor- absolutely best preparation, worst actual <laughs> using of what you've... So I'll, like, carry three litres of water on a ride. Yeah. Three kilos. I weigh 58. Right. So, you know, it's like... It's not exactly a small percentage of my body weight, plus a plus a bike that's, you know, all the, especially camera pack and all, it's a lot of my body weight that I'm carrying yeah. on top of me. 
and then just not drink any of it. <laughs> so stupid. So it gets to a point now where I, if we're going on a big ride, it's like get people to tell me that I need to drink. Right. Or actually have a talk to myself if I'm out. Like yeah. I did Ben Louie, um, like the four mountains off Ben Louie. Ben Louie is a big old hill. And uh, I told myself that every time I crossed water, I would drink the contents of my water bottle and refill it. Nice. And I think that's the only ride I've done probably in the last five years where I've been properly hydrated. <laughs> Interesting. So do you not get Just, thirsty, get hungry? I, I don't know. Strange. You usually get to a point where you get quite deep into a ride and feel wobbly. Yeah. And then somebody will be like, have you eaten anything? I'm like, oh, no, probably. I think I had four bits of Haribo about seven hours ago. <laughs> Just really bad at fueling up, even yeah. if we've stopped to eat somehow get back on the bike without having eaten anything. You must have a good engine to be able to keep motoring without much uh, being put into it. Yeah. But I think that's more just, I think that's sheer luck. That's not from like training or anything. That's right. just, just you. luck of the draw. Yeah. I don't need much. I'll keep going with no fuel. Yeah. And then just feel a bit weird. <laughs> so yeah, so good friends now are just like, you're an idiot. When you drink, drink, drink. drink some water and eat some food. Quality. It seems, yeah, it seems crazy that you do all those big adventures and then that's the little thing that catches you out. The worst <laughs> thing is um, when I've gone and you're going to sleep out or sleep in a bothy. Um, and generally bothies are fine because they'll be next to a river or whatever. And it's fine in the daylight. But you get up in the middle of the night and you realise you've not drunk enough for 24 hours and you need some water. And you've got to go stumbling through the darkness while everybody else is asleep to try and not fall into a river. Just and <laughs> you can at that point you you can never drink enough water. Yeah. So yeah, it's one of the things I really try and remind myself to do now, because certainly when it comes to photos, you're going to start taking a lot, an awful lot of terrible photos because your brain's just not functioning right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's. I'm just trying to picture how many times you stopped and picked up your water bottle today, and I can I can think of once, but I definitely I drank weirdly. Decided to try and inhale most of my water today because I did it when we were climbing. Yeah, and usually I will stop and drink. Right, or stop and not drink, as yeah. the case may be. But <laughs> for some reason, I decided to do it on the steeper climbs today and try and Why like, get it in the lungs instead. Good effort. In your in your time, you've. I guess had the opportunity to ride with quite a lot of pro riders, ex-pro riders, a lot mm -hmm. of fast people. What have you picked up from all of those opportunities over time? Are there certain things that you think you've you've learned from these incredible athletes? That is a good question. I don't know, like, I'm quite lucky in that quite a lot of, not I say quite a lot, I've become good friends with a good number of people I've ended up riding with. And the one thing I've learned is it doesn't matter how fast I get, I'm always going to get smoked. <laughs> <laughs> you get to be okay with that over a period of time. Yeah, like uh, myself and Scott, um, Isla Short's other half, have a saying, certainly here, that you've got to train quite hard just to be average. And I think that's sort of just uh, indicative of the company we keep, in that you've got folk like Isla or Stu Thompson and Rob Frill, all these phenomenally fit, and then Stu can turn his hand down a hill 
in a fairly annoyingly fast fashion. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think I've consciously thought I've learnt that from that person. Right. So I remember Stu telling me to do something recently and I thought, now nah, I'm fine because, you know, I'm 34 and set my ways. And uh, I do a lot of, kind of goes back to your previous question in many ways, but on big days out, I will just go at the pace I'm happy pushing all day. Yeah. So there's very, very little sprint. So my all-day engines, I can just go at the same pace all day. And when everybody else, start, most people would start to flag, I do the same speed. Okay. But Stu said you need to do some high intensity because I think it's called polarised training. Something like so that. So you do a lot of big, steady miles and then the odd, like, fully chew your stem, rinse the tank kind of riding. Yeah, blood coming out of your throat, sort of. We've not got yeah. there yet, but tonight we are doing, we're reprising Wednesday World Champs, which is an 11-mile loop with six or seven high-intensity intervals in it. Yeah. And... That is my excuse to... That's the only day of the week where I will fully rinse the tank. Okay. That is almost every Wednesday. How long are the intervals? It depends. There's one probably between two and five minutes. Oh, right, okay. So reasonably yeah. long. Yeah, yeah. And there's one, because I don't weigh very much, my power on the flat is pretty terrible. Yeah. And there's a bit over by Loch Venica here that's fairly flat. Slight undulations, but mostly flat. And if you're a big, powerful rider, you would just motor along it. And I've kind of set myself the task of leading the train out along there. Okay. And knowing that everybody, I've heard people coasting behind me. <laughs> you're clearly not going very fast at all. Um, but I get to the end of that and I've got nothing. And I never do that. Yeah. But my fitness has gone through the roof since okay. I've been doing it. So once a week? Once a week, just go and... In the dark, certainly up until a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And just, yeah, level yourself. Beast yourself. Yeah. Yeah, fair play. And what about from the non-riding side of things there? Are there, are there people that you've met along your, your way through the, the industry and your career so far that have had an impact on how you live or how you work or how you do certain things? Is there anything that stands out that you've picked up from anyone? Sam Needham told me a Gary Perkinism. I think I'm right in attributing this. I know Sam told me, and I'm pretty sure Gary told him, and it was if you shoot shit, you become shit. <laughs> and it essentially comes down to the ability of a motor-driven DSLR to just spray a load of photos. Yeah. And you just pick the two or whatever out of, like, the 60 you've done. Yeah. Um, so I shoot very minimally. Um, and that sort of started becoming my own idea in many ways in that in the mountains, say you go and ride somewhere in the Alps and it looks amazing, you've got amazing ridge, you, single track you're riding down. If you've got a full set of lenses, that trail's going to look exactly the same in almost every photo. Yeah. Because everything looks amazing. You've got to then go and find where it looks like superlative okay yeah yeah so rather than just take like a million photos and you're like oh well these all look the same you've got to go and try and find the six or seven places say on a certain bit of trail where a certain lens is going to make it look unbelievable yeah so went from 
my first DSLR just like spraying photos left, right and centre to taking only the photos I need to. Okay. And usually that'll just take a test shot, make sure you've got the exposure and all that jazz yeah. right and then just get it done with. Delete the test shot you've taken Yeah. or adjust accordingly Yeah. and then just get it done. Interesting. So your process when you get back from a shoot is relatively streamlined then you're not you haven't got a load of excess imagery that you need to trawl yeah. through and pick the good ones yeah. you're shooting what you really really want yeah and really try and keep the faff down because you could sometimes i think it's easy to get you can see the photo in your head but it's not quite working yeah, and sometimes okay. that photo just doesn't exist it doesn't matter how good a photographer or what kit you've got the photo you've got in the head doesn't exist via any means uh -huh. And it's knowing when to just be like, right, let's crack on and go and do something else. Yeah. Because if you're in the mountains, again, it's all going to look amazing. So there's going to be something 30 seconds down the trail that's probably going to look just as good or better. And it's knowing how to choose when to pick those spots. Um, so, yeah, generally don't shoot a lot of photos. Right. Certainly compared to a lot of people. Interesting. I guess it's sort of if I was shooting race photography, that would be very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to, you've only got that split second yeah. to capture and the moment, right? I am terrible at race photography. <laughs> like, I'm, hands up. I've not even really tried, but shooting straight at a rider coming down a trail, just can't do it. Okay. And I've had to actually, like, go out and practice having a rider coming straight at me. And that might be equipment. Because you've got a slower, a non-pro level lens. I think they just focus a little bit slower. Okay. And you get a lot of out-focus photos. Yeah. Well, the background's in focus, but the rider's fuzzy. Yeah. I think that might just be... But, yeah. It's a definitely yeah. a different art, being different able to... Set. Certainly, say, you rate, you're a, photogra a team photographer, mm -hmm. and you've basically got five riders you need to get on the race run. And if you don't, you've basically not done your job properly. Yeah. Actually, quite glad I don't have that kind of pressure. Yeah, when but, you speak to like people like Sven and Boris about what a World Cup week looks like for them, it sounds it's pretty brutal, pretty full on. Yeah, and yeah. then you just work till one a.m. So I worked with Sven at the Trans Provence. Okay, yeah, and uh, you'd get up at like between five and six a.m. and they'd ride pretty much all the stages that the racers did, but with a very heavy camera pack and those yeah. guys are flat out man like there's a serious skill not just letting your camera bag take you over the bars <laughs> on some of that stuff and then they get home and everybody would all the racers have their dinner and go to bed and that's pretty much when they'd start editing the photos incredible um yeah so it's pretty gnarly but Go they'd on. basically do that at a world cup yeah. and then just be like if it's fort william you just get in the car and drive to Leah gang just like that's that can't be good. That's brutal. Yeah, you've got to be a certain type of person to be able to handle that. I think mm, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, do you think mountain bike journalism is changing? I mean, we've we've had this big shift, I guess, from print to online. Um, there's still a, you know a little bit of both, but online seems to be dominant, and that's changed certainly the imagery. I think that people need to some extent for their work and the way it's viewed and all that has, has changed things. Do you see that kind of progressing? What do you think what do you think is in the future for mountain bike journalism? I think print's coming back. Okay. But I, clearly the the titles that survived are just like I think it was just a bit of 
print Darwinism, like you've got like the people that can't stay afloat don't, sadly. Yeah. There's been a few very sort of um long lived titles that have gone gone to the chop. Yeah. Um but it seems like the ones that have stayed are doing better than ever. Yeah. Um and it weirdly in many ways probably that I think certainly from my perspective has meant that the work's more consistent. But that's probably part as well just due to the fact that I've been you know, again, you build relationships. I think certainly with regards consumption of media, there's an awful lot of it's just it's so instant and then forgotten. Yeah, definitely. And that's I think that's partially why prints doing so I think lockdown everybody clearly needs something to read on the toilet during lockdown <laughs> but um, I think people appreciate print more now than they may be used to because of it and yeah. um, I think you've got to again that's probably again goes back to when you see that's asked the most fulfilling part of the job is if you can take a photo that doesn't just become disposable Okay, it's, it gets printed. It gets printed yeah. or it just, like, sounds really corny, but you pop a photo on social media and it just keeps getting the attention. Okay, yeah. I think, and that in itself is an art form. You've got to be able to take, like, spectacular photos. For sure. Um, and I think a lot of the time that means taking photos that you wouldn't necessarily... Like, I do a lot of... Night photography. Yeah. And that seems to be as popular, if not more, than the bike stuff. Okay. And it's just because, I don't know, just like going outside and sitting under the stars. Well, I'll take, take the camera with me, see what happens. Um, so, yeah, I think it's good to branch out from what you, what you do and then yes. it actually even makes the stuff you normally would do better yeah you learn more i guess pushing yeah. your comfort zone into mm -hmm. different areas for sure just another way of understanding the kit that you work with yeah good stuff so yeah i think print's definitely i don't want it sounds really cliche but print definitely isn't dead okay good um i think i remember seeing a post from cranked and saying that they're like they'd sold out of all of their back issues yeah yeah that's a pretty impressive yeah yeah, I was chatting to Rob at MBUK the other day, yeah. and I know their subscriptions are up like more than they've been yeah. for many, many, many years mm -hmm. through lockdown. So, yeah, it's really good to hear that sort of stuff because yeah. it's nice having print product around. Yeah, and it's it's even go just certainly from a freelancer perspective, a company is going to have more budget to invest in the people doing the work. Yeah. Maybe they don't just get their staffers to do ninety percent of the magazine anymore, mm -hmm. and you know. Um, so yeah, it's looking good. Excellent. A bright new future. Yeah, let's go with that. Let's keep it positive. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we're going to hit up our four final questions. Go. First one. If our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike, what should they go and spend it on? Skills coaching. Like, I think I rode my bike for almost 20 years. Never had anybody analyse my riding. And then I did a day with Rab Wardell yeah. at Glentress shortly before um, we went out to do a stage race. And he taught me how to ride, like, green trails. I was like, I can ride green trails, Rab, this is stupid. He was like, 
why is all your weight over the back axle? I was like, I don't know, but I always seem to just understeer on these corners. Like, yeah, because there's no weight on your front wheel. I was like, oh, yeah, right, okay. And then we went to do some jumps and I just kept casing all the jumps. He's like, you're pulling up too early. I was like, no, I'm not. I have been doing this for ages. And I was like, you need to pull, pull up on the bars after you think that your front wheel's left the lip and then just cleared them all first time. I was just like, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. But I think people just think that what they're doing is right and something else must be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's yeah, really interesting. I've never known of anybody come home from a skills day and not think, I should, should probably do more of them. Yeah, and it's that whole thing, like, no, everyone likes going fast, and it? Yeah. To get better, you have to slow down. Like, all of the skills stuff, you're mm-hmm. doing it slower so you can appreciate what's happening and you can feel it and you can change stuff. Yeah. It's not very glamorous, is it? But it definitely works. No. People, yeah, just don't want to take a step back and look at them. Yeah. People aren't very critical of themselves. Well, they should be. Yeah. Self-deprecating, they probably are, but they don't want to, like, get better or go around corners. Fair enough. So, Good. yeah, skills coaching. Love it. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Oh, um, that's a good question. Put more time into growing height than growing hair. <laughs> yeah, we both suffered in that one. You've got more on your face, though. I've got an awful lot of hair and not a lot of height. <laughs> but I'm pretty good at hide and seek, so, you know, swings and roundabouts. Win-win. Yeah. All right, third question. If you could have a coaching session with anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? And it doesn't have to be a rider, or you can have a rider or a non-riding one. Oh, good question. Good question. I think any good any good coach, this is going to sound like completely non-committal, but I think any good coach is going to be able to break down your riding and build you back up. Yeah. But I'm going to go with Cathro. Uh, okay. Simply because we look ridiculous together. <laughs> Because um, I think he's got a foot and four inches on me, right? And his hips are level with my armpits, so it's just like little and large. Um, and yeah, just watching Benji ride is amazing. Yeah, and I think a non-riding one, I'd probably go Gary Perkin. Okay, he's definitely the Obi Wan Kenobi of uh, for the photography world. Yeah, that would be interesting for sure. Is there a specific element of his work you'd want to kind of pick into? I. Th- I remember being, do you remember the Santa Cruz Strega launch where Anka Anka Martin basically dressed up as a witch and got chased around the woods by a load of people who looked like they were in a Dio video? I do not remember that. It's well good video, but I was one of the angry villagers (laughs) with a burning torch. And every time Stu Thompson, who was um, directing, was like, Gary, did you get the shot? I was like, yeah. It's just, it seemed a bit too seamless. Yeah. And I want to be that good. I'm not sure if you can teach that or it's just a case of, you know, years and years of experience, but it seemed a bit too easy. Fair play. That's impressive. Yeah. That and maybe Duncan Philpot. Okay, yeah. He, he always seemed to he, think he had a time machine at Transprovence because <laughs> he was always, he'd always have his photos done before everyone else. I was just like, I don't even know how you've done that. Yeah. Maybe shooting less, we've like only, you say. We've only been back five minutes. Yeah. Everybody else is still editing. You've got yours done and uploaded. And they're bangers. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like they're rubbish and he's just not bothered. They're yeah. all incredible shots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. 
It's a skill in itself, I think. Definitely. Yeah, a useful one too. Mm-hmm. All right, final question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Play the guitar. Okay. It's not screens and yeah. it's not riding bikes. Yeah. And I, the third riff I learned was an Iron Maiden riff, big into my metal me. Yeah. And that was like, as soon as I could make a noise that sounded like a song, that was it. It sits, guitar and the amp sits next to me in front of the computer. And if I just need no screens, just close the computer, throw the phone into the corner and just play some Megadeth or something. Nice. Is it like a, almost like a meditation for you? Like, is it a way of just taking your focus away from everything and getting in the zone or something? Or is it just an enjoyable thing? It's... It, again, it's like a love learning. I think that's why bikes, photography and guitar kind of work for me because you never stop learning. Yeah. Um, there's that what well, that classic Eddie Merckx quote about it doesn't get easier, you just go faster. Photography, you should always be improving. Yeah. Um, certainly I've worked my way up through camera models as one's got, just won't do what I need it to do. So you can see the progression there. And then I have a, a sheet of riffs that I can play mm-hmm. and the sheet just gets kept, keeps getting bigger and bigger. Nice. So it's like, it's, it's learning, it's not screens, it's not bikes. And it's just good to have an off switch from stuff. Yeah. Do you keep that sheet so that you can see your own progression or for other reasons? It's more now that I got to a point where I couldn't remember them all. Okay. And just writing down the song and it just intro after it yeah usually it was like right yeah remember that nice so i don't think it necessarily it wouldn't be you know there's probably other things like stretching and foam rolling they're actually a genuine benefit <laughs> but certainly day-to-day life just being able to just be like right well I can put everything to one side and just play some music nice sounds good Cool. Well, it's been super interesting chatting. It was very nice heading up the hill and riding Thanks some of me. your incredible local trails. If people want to see examples of your work, where's the best place? I mean, obviously there's Instagram, but what? where else should they look in the mountain bike world? Oh, um, all over the place. All over the That sounds a bit ruthless. No. <laughs> Instagram, yep. Go for it. Um, What's your Instagram handle? Pete Scullion. Cool. Not one the of these. Notes. Not one of these weird. I don't know, like violet daffodil or something. Yeah, Just, nothing um, obscure. Nope. Um, and then there's stuff coming in cranked single track. Uh, a magazine that's being relaunched. I'm not sure if I'm actually allowed to talk about that one. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that's it. Basically, British-based print magazines. Next issue. Yeah. Go for it. Job done. Job done. Living the dream. Indeed. Cool. Nice one, mate. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the rest of this sunny day in Scotland. And uh, yeah, take care. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Pete. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. A massive thanks to Cushcore for supporting this episode. If you want to try tyre inserts, Cushcore are the ones, as they really will enable you to go bigger, corner harder and ride faster with total confidence. Head over to Cushcore.com to check them out or silverfish-uk.com if you're based in the UK. Also, a big thank you to Nukeproof. If you want to check out their awesome new and improved range of ride wear, then head to nukeproof.com.
If you want to be in with a chance of winning a mega prize bundle from Nukeproof and Kushcore, then all you need to do is spend a couple of minutes helping me out by filling in my 2021 listener survey before the end of May. You can do that by heading to downtimepodcast.com forward slash survey. Be quick though, because you've only got a few days left to enter. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get your hands on some of our brand new spring and summer 2021 merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all the proceeds going to help improve the podcast. You know what to do by now. Please keep on spreading the word. Tell your riding mates and share the episodes on your social media. It makes a massive difference and it all helps me keep this thing going. If you've got a couple of minutes, I'd also really appreciate you taking the time to give us a quick review over on Apple Podcasts. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride.